Welcome to episode 201, the little known bully on the block, eating disorders and the impact of mast cell activation syndrome, featuring Amy Isabella Chalker, RDN. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored to be joined by my dear colleague, Amy Isabella Chalker. Amy is a registered dietitian, and she's coming on today to talk about something that a lot of us don't know about, which is mast cell activation syndrome and its relationship to eating disorders. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we dive into this topic, um, why don't you take a moment to tell us about yourself and your background and how you came to work specifically with this population? Sure. So I've been a dietitian for about 17 years and started out working more broadly with families in particular, helping parents feed children in emotionally and behaviorally healthy ways. So I was always interested in sort of more the emotional and behavioral end of food. And then as my career progressed, I became more and more interested in working with the sort of accelerated version of that with eating disorders as, you know, feeding goes awry and as relationship with food goes awry um, as children age. And I started to make that my, my main focus. And it wasn't really until the last couple of years that I started to see a lot of my eating disorder clients showing up with a either a diagnosis or a mention of mast cell activation syndrome in their chart histories. And it was curious to me because it was something that I had never heard of as a clinician, um, something that I was curious about because it seemed to be happening more and more. I was seeing more and more charts showing up with with this in, in the history. And so I started to do my own digging and my own research and found that there are some wonderful resources out there that are speaking to the importance of making this um, syndrome known. So that was my trajectory for getting into this, this intersection. Thank you for coming on to talk about it. It's something that I'm familiar with because of having a family member with a severe autoimmune disorder and hearing these various acronyms, you know, MCIS, POTS is another one. Like there are these mm-hmm, acronyms right? that you hear in the community that kind of swirl around and it's easy to to hear them and then forget about them. But then I too started seeing MCIS, mast cell activation syndrome coming up so much in yes. uh, clients that have autoimmune disorders, you know, alongside things like lupus and going, what is this? How do we learn more about it? Because, and I'm sure you'll talk about it, I've seen real time how it has such a very real mental health impact. And that, uh, you know, if, if we as clinicians don't know about these things, we can't help be the front line to screen and refer to a doctor to help. So thank you. Thank you for coming on to share this with us. Um, where would you like to begin? It's a great question. Well, I think it's because of, you mentioned how many um, acronyms are floating around out there and it is easy to get lost in the alphabet soup of it all. So it might be useful just to um, break it down a little bit and talk about what, what mast cell activation syndrome even is and um, go from there. Sounds great. So. Um, and I don't presume to um, 
you know, know that everyone else has the same amount of knowledge about the immune system, but just quick sort of 101 immune system primer. Uh, mast cells themselves are immune cells. So when we think of immune cells, we might think of white blood cells, for instance. That is a type of immune cell in our body. Mast cells are one type of immune cell, and they are located throughout the body. They are primarily located in areas that interface with the outside. So on the skin, on mouth, eyes, um, gastrointestinal tract, areas that have some kind of interface with the external world. That's where they're the most prevalent in the body. So like most immune cells, when they are exposed to a particular stimuli, and that stimuli can be different for everybody. For some people, it's uh, dust, dirt, mold, uh, pollen, um, and we'll go into some more of the potential stimuli for people who have mast cell activation syndrome. But when the mast cells are exposed to a stimuli, they release thousands upon thousands of mediators, one of which are histamines. We've probably heard of histamines because they get the most press in um, allergy commercials and, and things. You hear about histamines, histamines. And so the mast cells release histamines in response to certain stimuli. And these histamines cause what we think of as symptoms. So again, we'll go into more detail, but it can be anything from sneezing, itching, wheezing, asthma. Um, with mast cell activation syndrome, there's a whole host of other organ systems potentially involved, but that's the basic mechanism um, that's happening with the immune cells. In mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cells respond to stimuli by releasing an over-proliferation of these mediators, so an over-proliferation of histamines. And I make this distinction only because there is a type of mast cell condition called mastocytosis, which has been uh, known and is talked about further back in the literature and that is known as an overproliferation of the mast cells themselves. So there are too many mast cells where there should not be that, that number of mast cells. But in mast cell activation syndrome, it's that the mast cells are of normal number in the body, but they are overly activated by certain stimuli. And so we, we look into how to manage the um, stimulation of the mast cells themselves, how to stabilize the mast cells so that they do not respond in such an exaggerated way to stimuli. Um, so that's the, that's the short and, and sweet definition of, of mast cell activation syndrome. Can you talk for a minute about why we as a society aren't very familiar with mast cell activation syndrome? Yeah. So it was really only recognized in the literature, and by recognized, I mean any sort of study, review, you know, case reports really did not come into the literature until about 2007, really between 2007 and 2011, that there was a, a, an interest in really starting to investigate. So it hasn't been that long since it's been on the radar of even 
researchers and, and clinicians, it was recognized um, not with the same name, not with mast cell activation syndrome, but it was recognized as a condition as early as the 80s, but really just an absence of mention in literature and studies until 2007. So that's one of the reasons why, because it is a, a relatively recently um, studied condition. The other reason is that, um, as you alluded to earlier, it is such a, it can seem like such an amorphous condition because, as we'll get into, it does it can and does often touch on almost every organ system in the body, and so it can mimic so many other conditions. And there's this sort of looming question, which came first, you know, this other condition or the mast cell, how do they interact? Um, uh, and mast cell activation syndrome also is very difficult to test. There is no, there is no very solid lab test that definitively uh, diagnoses mast cell. That is another reason that it, we don't hear about it as much because there are many clinicians out there who dismiss it as, as even existing because there is no definitive lab test for diagnoses. Thank you. So what you're describing is basically MCAS is what we would call a clinical diagnosis, meaning that there isn't a surefire way. So for example, if we're talking about diabetes, that's something we can measure and quantify. Whereas MCAS is much more nebulous, particularly in the way that it's showing up. And I, I look forward to hearing more about that from you. Um, I have heard mast cell activation syndrome used interchangeably with histamine intolerance. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because especially if we're, if our goal today is kind of a primer for clinicians about MCAS, what are some of the other terms or flags that they might hear out of a client's mouth or see in a chart where it's like, oh, these are related or they're the same or, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. To my knowledge, there is no uh, definition for histamine intolerance other than somebody's lived experience, you know. With, and so, and it's a little bit um, maybe misleading to use the term histamine intolerance because there are different categories for mast cell activation syndrome. There is primary mast cell activation syndrome, which is more the mastocytosis end of things, so an overproliferation of the cells themselves. There's secondary mast cell activation syndrome, which has more to do with the allergy-mediated responses in the body. So if you have um, an IgE-mediated allergy test that shows you are um, allergic to any number of things, allergic to uh, dairy or lactose or allergic to something in the environment, it will show up on that test. Is that technically, um, what was the term you used? Histamine? histamine intolerance. Histamine intolerant. So would that, you know, could you technically say, oh, well, I'm histamine intolerant because I have an allergy to, you know, pollen? I guess in theory, you could, you know, use that, but there is no clinical, to my knowledge, and I could be mistaken, but I don't know of a clinical definition that defines histamine intolerance. I don't know. Um, and then when we talk about most of the mast cell, um, the type that I'll mostly touch on today is more of the idiopathic variety, meaning we don't know exactly where and why mast cell activation syndrome originates. We are pretty sure it's a result in part of genetic mutations that have not been fully identified but are currently being researched. Um, 
it's just a much more precise definition than something perhaps a bit more um, undefined than histamine. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Because of my involvement in the autoimmune disorder world (laughs) and my exposure, I had the opportunity to talk with an immunologist about MCAS. And she used some language that I thought was really valuable for me, Hmm. which was the idea of like a histamine bucket. So it's like, basically, if MCAS is this overproliferation, how do you try to turn down the triggers for that proliferation? And so how she described it was, you know, for example, if you're reactive to certain foods that are high in histamine, and that's a trigger for your MCAS, think of it as a histamine bucket where it's like, okay, if I'm, if I'm feeling really good today and uninflamed, if you will, then I can have that cup of orange juice. Uh, but if I am already like feeling from exercise that I'm all clammy and lightheaded, do not have the orange juice uh, because it's high in histamine. And so it, that to me was helpful to imagine because it is such a um, opaque process to understand of like, I know, I know talking with people that have MCS, MCAS, sometimes it's like, sometimes I can have this food and it's fine. And sometimes I can do this activity and it's awful like, why is this so difficult to predict? And it is. And I, I think you've also touched on something that's very important for the intersection of mast cell activation syndrome and the eating disorder population, which is that mo- much of the eating disorder population is already very restrictive with their food in some capacity. Now, is that because mast cell activation syndrome is underlying their condition and it was it was begun because of a response to mast cell activation syndrome? Or is it because malnutrition does and starvation does drive symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome? But either way, there is usually a self-imposed limitation on food that is leading to uh, weight loss and malnutrition. And so when we work in the eating disorder world, when we work with mast cell activation syndrome, we try not to work with a quote unquote low histamine diet because at the end of the day, all foods will stimulate the release of histamines. It's just what happens when we when we eat. And so to your point, yes, is it important to know ourselves and to know what really triggers us and to know when we can eat these foods and when you know, perhaps we, we can't. Yes. Um, but I try to avoid talking about a quote unquote low histamine diet with clients because it can exacerbate the, the eating disorder part of the condition. Thank you. I appreciate that. So now that you've explained what MCAS is, Mm -hmm. Tell us about the signs and symptoms. Like, what does it even look like? You and I have both alluded to this whole smattering of systems that can be affected yes. by it. Um, but for the clinicians listening, of like, what what actually is MCAS and how does it present to a medical doctor? How does it come up in conversation with a therapist? Yes, and this will often be the, the presenting client who is potentially has mast cell activation syndrome will usually be somebody who has seen multiple clinicians across multiple different disciplines. So they've seen gastroenterologists, they've seen allergists, they've seen dermatologists, they've seen dietitians, they've seen the widest variety of clinicians and 
typically have not received any sort of diagnosis. It's, it's usually a lot of question marks. And so when they're coming in, one of the things that is really often a hallmark of, of mast cell activation syndrome is that a number of different organ systems are involved. So for instance, from the perspective of skin issues, it could be hives, rash, itching, um, sensitivity to sunlight and or heat uh, and and very reactive uh, skin issues in response to heat. Also, mass activation syndrome is known as a very cystic condition. So often people who, who have it will have some variety of cysts, whether it's cysts on their head or under their skin, or perhaps they've been diagnosed with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome because they have cysts on their ovaries. They might have cystic acne. Uh, it's a very cystic, often a very cystic condition. And we're still just on the skin. This is just, you know, one, one organ system um, that it can be potentially impacted. Sinuses. So it's it can appear as a more uh, common, quote unquote, common allergic reaction. So uh, sinusitis, sort of bronchitis-like symptoms, wheezing, asthma-like conditions, um, all very common. Eye dryness um, uh, and sort of redness around the eyes, uh, all very common. And then we get into some of the other organ systems. And this is, again, where therapists or dietitians might see with the eating disorder population a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. So a lot of cramping, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, general abdominal discomfort, dysmotility. Um, some of these clients may have a, had a diagnosis of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. The two can coexist. Um, sometimes it is a misdiagnosis, but oftentimes mast cell activation syndrome and IBS are co-occurring diagnoses. Um, and then, and then we have the psychological aspects because the, um, mast cell activation syndrome has a direct impact on the brain. So, Things like um, mood swings, OCD, um, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, um, unusual states of moods. Unusual meaning you have your baseline mood and then you might have sort of um, exaggerated responses to things where you, where you didn't before or perhaps you've had this your whole life where your baseline constitution is as it is, but then um, very sometimes people are diagnosed, and I'm not saying this is a misdiagnosis, but it might almost seem bipolar in in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes the the there's a disconnect between mast cell active, and by disconnect I mean that there's um, clinicians might miss the connection between mass cell activation syndrome and mood conditions because they're seen as two separate entities. But in, in reality, they're, they're very, very inter, interlinked. And then for women in particular, and it is, women are, mass cell activation syndrome is a female-dominated condition. Um, in part, this is, be, well, we don't know exactly the full scope of why, but one of the thought processes is that estrogen receptors exist on mast cells. 
So female puberty can often trigger mast cell activation syndrome symptoms or worsen symptoms. Um, Symptoms can be worse during ovulation or leading up to the period. Um, There's often menstrual cramping, a heavier flow, more more mood, you know, lability. Um, so that is that is one thing where one organ system in particular that can be impacted and especially among the female population. Thank you. This has been so helpful for you to describe kind of these different symptoms and also appreciating that they're so varied. You might have a rash, you might not, you might have insomnia, you might not, you might have IBS symptoms, you might not. And I think that it, that's part of what makes it so complicated. Like I, I know I'd read a study years ago saying that um, the average diagnosis for an autoimmune disorder takes between five and seven years because it's these kind of things. And I'm not saying that MCIS is necessarily autoimmune, it's related to the immune system. But this idea that they're, that they're, it's such widespread signs that it's hard to recognize. And um, I'll say because of my knowledge of it that I never really intended to have, you know, it was because of having a child with severe autoimmunity that I'm into this, trying to figure out what's happening. Um, I, I now have recognized it in clients and obviously I can't diagnose as a mental health person, but I can say, Gosh, what you're describing, you know, I, I noticed that you'll say, oh, you had leftovers for dinner and then I see you the next morning and you're feeling really bloated and your mood is really low and you say you didn't sleep well. Are you familiar with mast cell activation syndrome? Can I tell you about it? And then I really recommend that you ask your doctor about it to see if there's something that might be on here. And it's happened more than once that that I've been one of the people to recognize it because of these kind of conversations of like, oh, this is what this looks like. And I completely agree with what you said and this idea that it can look like bipolar disorder, because it's like, why did this person's mood suddenly change? And it's like, well, because they were exercising and they have some exercise intolerance, that's releasing uh, histamines. It's because they, you know, leftovers have a lot, have higher histamines. It's because they ate a food that was loaded with histamines or that they got stung by a bee. That's one that I've seen. Right, right. <laughs> so, sure. So it's like this enormous change that's happening in somebody's body that we're only seeing these outward signs and then trying to discern what's happening. But particularly in allopathic medicine, we view mental health and physical health as very separate. And if you look at other traditional medicine systems, these are very interconnected. And I've definitely started to appreciate that um, over the years in, in these conversations that there's so much more going on here that's affecting how we think and feel and things like eating behavior or encopresis or enuresis, how we use or don't use a bathroom, for example, that we attribute to being a mental health problem that so often has a medical co- component, if not driven solely by a medical cause. Exactly. And, and you can only, you can really understand why many clients who are undiagnosed are coming with perhaps a plethora of other diagnoses. You know, I, I didn't even mention, you know, as one of the symptom subsets, um, fibromyalgia, joint pain, muscle pain, extreme fatigue. Um, and so people come with diagnoses of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. They come with diagnoses for, yeah, as you said, other mood disorders, um, uh, you alluded earlier to to POTS and um, another one, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. 
um, there's a number of conditions that have likely or possibly been diagnosed by other clinicians, and but we're missing maybe the umbrella or missing maybe the more overarching diagnosis. And there's still a lot of unknowns about why are all of these clustered together? Is Are they really separate diagnoses that are co-occurring, um, but they all have a similar root mechanism? Is it mast cell activation syndrome really as the overarching diagnoses and these subsets are really just symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome? There's no um, definitive answers on that yet. But just to know that, for instance, if someone comes in with a diagnosis of POTS, there's a 40, 40% of people who are diagnosed with POTS also have a mast cell activation syndrome. So seeing any of those, you know, as you said, the acronym, seeing any of those can be a big red sort of flashing light, like a screen for mast cell. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a great point. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with the POTS acronym, it stands for uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And one of the hallmarks of POTS is standing up and like from a seated or laying position and getting very dizzy, potentially um, passing out effectively and a whole lot of fatigue, brain fog, mood changes can go alongside it. Um, so when Amy and I are discussing POTS, that's what we're referring to. But it is this recognition that so much of this, there's overlap. Like MCAS occurs a lot with autoimmune disorders. Um, it occurs with Lyme disease. It occurs with cat scratch fever. Like there are all these ideas that I think we're only at a certain point in time as we start to learn more. But I, I appreciate, Amy, your point about, you know, how is this manifesting for us as clinicians? So is it a client that, you know, ADHD potentially could be related to brain fog, it could be related to mood changes that could be related to MCAS. Can you speak about the relationship that you see and what's happening in the eating disorder community related to MCAS? Like, to speak more about that component of how it's affecting conditions that have been otherwise labeled as anorexia. Yep. And I appreciate you making that segue because one thing I will mention about POTS in particular, after giving throwing out that sort of alarming statistic, um, POTS cannot be diet for the eating disorder community. POTS can't be diagnosed when malnutrition is present because it mimics malnutrition so so acutely. Um, so just to throw that out there, you know, within the intersection of mast cell and um, and eating disorders, it is important to focus on restoring nutritional status before officially making some of these diagnoses because and by these diagnoses I mean like POTS and some of the other um, co-occurring conditions um, but when when we're when we're looking at the intersection between mast cell and and eating disorders as I mentioned earlier there is sort of a which came first the chicken or the egg because as you can imagine if someone has had, mast cell activation syndrome for a good part of their life. And it might have shown up differently in childhood. It might have been exacerbated by puberty, as we mentioned. Um, the symptoms can shift over a lifetime. And so uh, childhood symptoms that were perhaps dismissed or overlooked might come up more in adulthood. They might look different. They might be more exacerbated. So you can imagine somebody trying to manage these symptoms might start, as you said, cutting out foods, trying to manage their symptoms 
uh, accordingly. And so at some point that can look like any number of eating disorder. I mean, it can look like anorexia. I mean, not look like, but it can become anorexia when there's a hyper-focus on cutting out foods. Um, that is we have seen time and time again, any kind of dieting, even if it's not with the intention of weight loss, can turn into a desire for weight loss that the starvation brain causes a hyper-focus on uh, a preoccupation with body and weight, and it can turn literally turn into an eating disorder. Um, another really common eating disorder that we might see overlapping with mast cell is ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is by definition, uh, there is an absence of focus on the body. Um, there is not necessarily a preoccupation with weight or body image, but there is a hyper-focus on the qualities of food. So texture, temperature, um, some people who have ARFID have a fear of uh emesis of vomiting or um, a fear of choking if they eat certain foods. And, and this can all stem from um, trying to manage mast cell-like reactions. On the flip side, someone who develops an eating disorder and um, is in a state of malnutrition or starvation, this can trigger latent mast cell activation syndrome because Mast cell activation syndrome, as I said in the beginning, is likely the root root cause is likely genetic mutations. But though that can be those mutations can remain dormant until there is a significant trigger. And those triggers can be, as you mentioned, Lyme's disease, it can be mold exposure, but a huge trigger of a dormant mast cell is stress. And that can be uh you know, PTSD type stress or complex PTSD type stress over a lifetime, it can be um, in eating disorder world, it is often the stress of starvation and malnutrition that can be a trigger for mast cell. So that's where we're really seeing the, the intersection of the two um, in, our, in our offices. And it, and, and when I say in our offices, it really is in a lot of private practices where this is being recognized. I have yet to find a treatment center, and there are a lot of treatment centers you know, for eating disorders in this country, um, but I have yet to find a treatment center that is equipped to um, manage co-occurring mast cell and eating disorders. And in my mind, that would be the next, the next frontier in the treatment world. I'm glad you bring up this kind of overlap and acknowledge it when it comes to treatment, because that same phenomenon exists, for example, with pans pandas. So with pans pandas, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndromes, syndromes and uh, pandas is specifically related to strep. We have a great episode featuring Dr. Roseanne where she's talking about pans pandas. And one of the misnomers with pans pandas is that it includes the word pediatric, uh, but it doesn't always just happen in children. And so MCAS can present with pans pandas. And one of the hallmark symptoms of pans pandas is often ARFID, is often this um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that, again, uh, may have a medical contributor. And so to send 
uh, or recommend a person go to residential treatment um, or even psychiatric hospitalization because they have such severe symptoms of anorexia. Um, it's really complicated if these treatment centers aren't screening for these other conditions um, because it, it may be very difficult to treat it if it's a, if it's strep throat that's driving it, if it's severe stress that's leading to a, a sensitivity to histamine and foods, for example, and you're at an eating disorder treatment center that is giving you foods that are high histamine. You know, like it's like we're only going to get so much traction. Uh, and this is where I think for clinicians, there's a lot of um, referring to the right clinicians, but also a lot of psychoeducation to explain this is what this looks like and this is how you talk to providers about it because they may be missing what's right in front of them. They may not see the forest through the trees or maybe it's something else, but let's keep pulling on that thread. And as you mentioned, they may be really discouraged because they've been seeing all these different doctors for years. They've been seeing a gastroenterologist. They've seen an immunologist. They've seen all these different doctors and no one can figure out what's wrong. They just know that they don't feel good in a lot of different ways. Right, right. And I, I think too, in the eating disorder field in particular, there is there has always been an emphasis on you know, restoring weight, restoring nutritional status in order to, um, in order to help alleviate any, in, for, in this case, like gastrointestinal symptoms that are happening. And so there's usually a assurance to clients, you know, just weight restore, restore your nutritional status and that bloating, discomfort, everything, you'll feel better. And when mast cell is involved, and I will say, you know, the statistic for the overlap of eating disorders and mast cell is, is pretty alarming. It's somewhere between 20 and 25% of clients who have an eating disorder are also diagnosable with mast cell activation syndrome. Like that's, that's a lot of people who might be inadvertently being gaslighted by clinicians who are assuring them, you know, just do this and you'll feel better. And then they don't. Um, and there's such a risk of, of relapse. Um, there's a really there's a really interesting um, little factoid too that untreated mast cell can drive weight gain in some cases um, through an inflammatory um, pathway. They don't know exactly the the pathway, but um, it. it it may have something to do with excess adipose tissue growth. And so if clients are not being treated for the underlying cause for mast cell, then there is a higher risk of relapse as well. And eating disorder clients who are, you know, who have perhaps been told that their weight will settle at their genetically predisposed, you know, set point, but then it doesn't because they're dealing with um, this inflammatory underlying condition that's not being addressed. Thank you for bringing up the inflammatory component. I know one of the pieces of research that I had read earlier on in the pandemic, in I think it was 2021, there is a relationship between, for example, long COVID and mast cell activation syndrome. So this idea that something's happening in the body, as you mentioned, Amy, like, is it a co-occurring infection? Uh, infection? Is it exposure to allergens? What is it? But that that is driving, I think, um, a, a switch being flipped that turns on MCAS, it was kind of lingering there and smoldering, but things like COVID turning that on for people, um, just like pandas is when strep gets turned on, that mast cell activation may get turned on. Um, I think, you know, this is just me standing on the outside, but it's like, oh, we're starting to see an awful lot of overlap here when it comes to inflammation and this, um, 
the the dangers of a high inflammatory diet and way of being. And that goes back to other conversations we've had on the podcast. So please take a look at those. Like we had um, Dr. Roseanne come back and speak about different diets, for example, that have been, or not even diets, quote unquote, but ways of eating um, and foods to focus on that are more anti-inflammatory because we're seeing more and more research supporting that major mental health conditions are related to inflammation. Um, so all of these pieces are kind of coming together and overlapping. And, and I think at some point we're going to really start to understand it, but I don't think it's a coincidence <laughs> that all these things are tied to inflammation. Right. Yes. Yes. I agree. And, and to, uh, on that note of, you know, special diets or ways of eating, typically we, again, in more traditional, um, eating disorder care, the standard is, you know, we want to expand the variety of foods as much as possible. So as, as few diets or special ways of eating as possible. However, when we have these co-occurring conditions, as you said earlier, you know, um, limiting leftovers, which are known to be high histamine is appropriate. Like there are certain times when, um, paying attention to the actual food itself. For instance, someone who has mast cell activation syndrome and you know potentially a co-occurring eating disorder may very well have true sensitivity to gluten or dairy without having an actual allergy. Now, the goal would be to treat them for mast cell if that is what's suspected so that those foods can be increased or as you said earlier, can be increased when they're not in the middle of a flare. Um, that would be the goal. But for instance, for treatment centers to acknowledge that and not um, sort of force just the, the uh, typical approach, which is just eat everything and, and the symptoms will ultimately go away, is, some, is just a more um, nuanced way to approach it. When working with clients in your role, so as a registered dietitian who is often working with clients that have a difficult relationship with food, you're screening for things differently than the average clinician, average therapist, I should say, mental health clinician. Um, can you speak about how you're screening for things like eating disorders? And then also, what are the questions you ask to learn more about whether or not something like MCAS, like if an inflammatory condition is contributing to those symptoms? Sure. So when I first meet with a client, it's um, a pretty thorough intake, and I, I prefer to do it face to face as opposed to have them fill out a questionnaire ahead of time. There is a, a very good mass cell um, questionnaire that is out there in the world, a questionnaire that can help screen for it. And I, and I will use that with clients who, for whom I suspect might also have mass cell, but when but I prefer to talk to them face to face because so much comes up in conversation, both when screening for eating disorders and screening for mast cell. So, and it's not necessarily just in that first 75 minute session that I have with clients that I get all the answers, right? It's, a, it, it's an unfolding over time. The things that tend to clue me into mast cell are, as we said, the, the multiple diagnoses or seeing multiple clinicians across different disciplines without any definitive answers or, or treatment or diagnosis. Um, the, so should kind of back up when 
We said earlier that there is no definitive lab test that can diagnose mast cell. There are two different schools of thought in the world of mast cell activation syndrome about diagnosis. They're called consensus one and consensus two criteria. Um, consensus one is the more strict uh, is the more strict criteria. So it involves looking at a lab test for tryptase, which is also a mediator released by mast cells. The kind of hitch is that in order to get an accurate reading, someone would have to go to a lab within four hours of having a pretty significant flare to get this test. And A, you can imagine you know that being difficult in and of itself, but B, a lot of labs aren't don't do this kind of testing. Three, it's, it can be really expensive. And four, finding a doctor who's savvy enough to actually prescribe the test, you know, to order the lab test. So you have to have all of these things like in perfect concert in order to have this, um, this lab test done. So consensus one criteria is much more, much more strict and lab oriented. Consensus two um, <clears throat> means or comprises two, at least two different organ systems being involved on a long-term uh, chronic basis. And, um, and two, that the symptoms are alleviated with treatment. So it's a little bit, you know, maybe in the reverse. So you'd have to treat somebody who has suspected mast cell in order to see if it helps the symptoms. But that's part of a consensus two criteria. The problem with consensus one is that it misses up to 85% of cases of people who have mast cell. Could consensus two overdiagnose potentially, but it would take more, you know, more discerning clinicians um, to to help make that, you know, help reduce over over diagnoses. Um, and right now, I would say we're dealing because about seventeen percent of the general population is estimated to have mast cell activation syndrome. So right now, we're dealing a lot more with underdiagnosis. Like overdiagnosis is not the problem right now. Um, you mentioned something there we haven't talked about yet, which is treatment. Um, can you speak a little bit? So we'll talk about eating disorder treatment, but especially if we're looking at a client who has eating disorder behaviors and suspected or diagnosed MCAS, what does treatment even look like? First and foremost, and it's usually parallel treatment. So first and foremost, we're trying to restore nutritional status and, and weight in somebody who has an eating disorder. Because as we mentioned, that can drive, if there is mast cell going on, it will be driving the mast cell responses. So that's always happening in concert with medication. Um, and that can look like anything from, I always like to say it starts out with believing the client. So if they say, I have, you know, I can't eat gluten, I can't eat dairy because it's too painful, then we work with that. We can use things, um, there are elemental shakes available, sometimes having somebody be on more of a liquid diet, which might be counterintuitive to eating disorder recovery or seem counterintuitive to eating disorder recovery. But in reality, it can help heal the gut enough that the person can actually take in enough calories in order to gain weight and, and regain their nutritional status. So that's often appropriate. Um, but really, first and foremost, believing the client and working within their parameters is incredibly important. Um, 
while that's happening with the dietitian, usually, um, ideally, we're also working with a doctor who's aware of both the medical, the medications and the -the over-the-counter treatments that are available for mast cell. And much of the treatment for mast cell focuses on mast cell stabilizers. So those are supplements and or medications that actually help stabilize the membrane of the mast cells so that they do not release as much histamine in response to the stimuli. Um, And those, the -the over-the-counter ones, can be anything from um, H1 and H2 blockers. So that would be uh, like your typical allergy medications like Zyrtec or Claritin. Um, Those are the H1s. H2 would be like Pepsid or Tagamet, um, things that we might use for acid reflux. Um, And then the other over-the-counter one that's often used is quercetin. Um, quercetin is a very, very powerful mast cell stabilizer. It's, it's a natural supplement, um, that can be started right away. So even if you're struggling to find a doctor who recognizes mast cell and who can treat or who can order the prescriptions, you can safely start a client on the over the counter products if you have, you know, screened appropriately and really feel there's um, a likelihood of mast cell activation syndrome. And then when you get into the medications, we have a number of mast cell stabilizers that are also very, very effective. Um, Sodium chromalin is one. Uh, Ketodafin is another. Uh, Low-dose naltrexone is another. And I will say that one of the treatment barriers to mast cell activation syndrome is the medications themselves, because many of them need to be made in a compounding pharmacy, meaning they need to be made in very specific doses that are not typically available in a, in a, regular, um, in a regular pharmacy. And often because one of the stimuli that can trigger mast cell is um, fillers and other excipient factors in medications. Sometimes they need to be made in compounding pharmacies where there's no dyes being used, no additional fillers being used. Um, so bottom line, it can get expensive um, and, and it can be very tedious <laughs> to go through that process. Thank you for explaining what treatment looks like. I know for mental health clinicians, depending in your license type and where you're located, do you have ethical and legal support from your boards to be recommending something? So always uh, pay attention to that. You know, there are certain license types in certain states that it's fine for a clinician to say, yes, go go to Sprouts or whatever market and get some uh, quercetin, which is a well-known kind of allergy supplement. Um, but in other places, we can't say that, you know, it would be veering outside of our clinical lane. But so make sure you know what's what's allowed in your uh, state of practice. Um, and you mentioned something that I'd, I'd like for you to expand on the difficulty in finding a doctor that works with this. You also mentioned the uh, cost. Um, it has been my experience that there are allopathic practitioners, i.e., quote unquote, Western medicine MDs, who are more familiar with mast cell activation syndrome and more likely to prescribe some of the mainstream medications like chromalin. And uh, that functional medicine doctors tend to be more familiar with this. But for many states in the United States, insurance doesn't cover functional medicine doctors and they may not cover compounding pharmacies. Um, so, can you speak a bit 
that, you know, if you suspect a client may have this and you say, ask your doctor, what are you telling a client of like, what doctor should they be going to and how do they speak about this? Yeah. So I try to be an advocate. So for instance, I think that in my experience, what is most important is that a client has a doctor, and this is across the board, whether someone has an eating disorder, whether they have mast cell, whether they have neither of those things, whether they have all of those things, is to find a doctor who really listens. And that sounds like such a simple you know, charge, but in this day and age, it can be really, really difficult to find a clinician who just believes you, who just, who, un, who is listening and hears, you know, the pain or the journey that you've been on in your medical, in your medical life and someone who's willing to hear you and open to information. And so if a client has that doctor, which I, sometimes I try to just help my client find a doctor who is a compassionate caregiver. They don't have to know necessarily thing one about mast cell activation syndrome, but they're willing and they're open. So sometimes I will help my client find a doctor first, a doctor like that. And then I, as the dietitian, will um, sometimes provide information on mast cell. Sometimes I, if the client has done a, um, a screening for mast cell, the, the questionnaire, I'll provide that along with some of just the current research and literature, um, just to give them as much information as as I can that is peer reviewed, that is you know um, relatively straightforward, so that they can they can understand that this is real, <laughs> that this is um, not something that's just coming out of the ether and. That, in my experience, has been the most effective way to educate doctors. Not necessarily there. Are, certainly, there are doctors out there who, you know, I, um, acknowledge and, and recognize mast cell activation syndrome. They're fewer and far between. I, in my experience, it's a lot more streamlined to find a compassionate doctor and educate them accordingly. Um, that being said, you know, of all the mast cell information that I'm talking about today, I wouldn't have any of it if it were not for um, Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, who runs the Gaudiani Clinic in Colorado. Um, she is really, in the whole country, really one of the premier doctors who works with the intersection of eating disorders and mast cell activation syndrome. Um, she has written a book called Sick Enough that is primarily focused on eating disorders, but also touches on, on mast cell. Um, she's written an excellent blog series on mast cell activation syndrome and the intersection with eating disorders. So there are, there are doctors out there who are on the forefront of this and who are excellent clinicians. As you alluded to, money is often one of the biggest barriers um, for some of the specialists, from some of the people who specialize in this um, which is why I think it's so important to be spreading the word to newer clinicians or clinicians who do not have knowledge of, of mast cell in the first place and utilizing them as much as we can. Thank you. Um, what typically, what kind of clinician diagnoses MCAS? Like, are you as a dietitian considered qualified to diagnose it? And you're shaking no. your head? No. No. Um, so, so is it an MD? that needs to be yes. providing that diagnosis. And then in a perfect world, every practitioner that's involved in this person's care is collaborating and talking about what's going on with this patient for best outcomes. Yes, exactly. 
yep, I, I can't diagnose in any capacity. I can't even diagnose an eating disorder. I can suspect, I can make recommendations, but I, I can't diagnose um, at all in my, in my profession. Can you speak a little bit more about the different types of eating disorders? And for our listeners, we have a great episode um, that covers kind of the, the basics of eating disorders. If you need that primer on the different language, you and I, for the purposes of today's conversation, have talked more about anorexia specifically. Is there a relationship with MCAS and other clinical types of uh, eating disorders, knowing also that the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, is kind of relative in the sense that somebody may not meet all of the criteria to qualify for a specific diagnosis. They may still be experiencing clinically relevant and functionally significant eating disorder symptoms. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really great um, point. I'm glad you brought that up because the most common category of eating disorders is the otherwise specified disorders. So they don't fall under the criteria for anorexia or bulimia or binge eating or, um, you know, the main eating disorder criteria, they are more, um, they're subclinical. So they don't necessarily, they're just as dangerous and they're just as dangerous to, to health and have just as many medical complications as, um, and because it could include something like what is known as atypical anorexia. It's a phrase that's sort of trying to be phased out because it makes it sound like it's less dangerous, but it's not. It's basically just someone who has all the criteria for anorexia, except that their weight remains within a quote unquote normal range. Um, But the medical complications are just as severe as they would be for anorexia. Um, Orthorexia is another label that gets sort of tossed around. It's not uh, it's not a diagnosable condition um, by by clinical standards, but it's seen it's presents as a preoccupation with health and clean quote unquote clean eating. That orthorexia in particular may may and does often overlap with mast cell activation syndrome because often people are seeking a way of eating that alleviates their symptoms. And especially according to mainstream, you know, according to social media, according to sort of the, um, the advice that's out there, it's like, we'll just eat clean. And, and you even alluded to like eating more anti-inflammatory foods, which is very scientifically valid and can take over to the point that the person is cutting out whole categories of food, missing macronutrients and micronutrients, undernourished, um, you know, at a lower weight, maybe not a weight that qualifies them for something like anorexia, but somewhere on that, on that spectrum. So, um, so there's a lot of intersection of, um, or of orthorexia of, yes, the, the more clinical eating disorders, but much even more so, I would say, for just general disordered eating where certain, where the relationship with food is interrupted in some way. In considering the relationship with food in the mental health community, we think of anorexia as something that's diagnosed on diagnostic manual. And in the medical community, anorexia is a sign it's used to describe significant loss of appetite or loss of eating behavior to the extent 
that it's lowered somebody's weight. Can you speak about that element? Because I think that's one of the pieces that is easy to miss because we so often as clinicians think about, um, particularly anorexia as related to potentially OCD, a control of intake. Um, it can be related to body dysmorphia, things like that. But then there's this whole other element where it's like, no, you're taking a medication that's causing you to be quote unquote anorexic, but we don't use that language in the mental health community. That's something that's used in the medical community. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about that and kind of anorexia as a symptom, not necessarily anorexia as a disorder? Yeah. That's such a that's such an interesting distinction in part because I found myself thinking about that the other day when I was working with a case, um, a an elderly woman who is post um, immunotherapy for for cancer and has as a result had changes in taste and is on various medications and has lost weight and. Um, by, as you said, by medical definition would be considered anorexic because she's unable to maintain, um, a weight within her, within her accepted weight range and nutrient status. Um, and, and I was, I was thinking about that because I was, I'm, I'm working sure with somebody who has anorexia, but it, the, the mark difference between an, an, anorexia diagnosis for, as an eating disorder and somebody who um, perhaps falls into this category of being post-chemotherapy or, um, or as you said, have, being on a medication is often the preoccupation with body size and weight. Often, not always, but often for people who are on the more, fall under the more medical definition of anorexia, uh, loss of appetite, you know, um, they often want to regain weight. It's not desirable for them to maintain a, a lower weight and lower nutritional status. The the body dysmorphia or the the pursuit of thinness is not what's driving their their condition. Again, not always because sometimes weight loss can induce a desire and preoccupation to lose more weight. That is that is always a possibility. Um, but at least at the outset, the focus was not on losing weight. It was, as you said, a, a byproduct or um, a symptom of something else. Whereas anorexia nervosa in the in the eating disorder sense usually starts out as a preoccupation with weight loss, with body image, um, and goes down that rabbit hole from the start. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, for folks who are listening that want to learn more about this intersectionality with mast cell activation syndrome and eating disorders, what's the best way? I mean, you you mentioned um, some resource, resources, but can you restate those and give us some more resources so that we can improve our knowledge on this? Absolutely. Um, I would absolutely refer people to the wonderful blog series that uh, Jennifer Gaudiani, Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani of the Gaudiani Clinic um, posted about two, two or so years ago, um, really in depth, really goes into um, case studies, goes into details about the different medications. It's very complete, very thorough, um, as well as her book, Sick Enough. And both of those are just excellent, excellent resources for the intersection of eating disorders and mast cell activation syndrome. 
um, again, I wouldn't know the majority of what I know were it not for her paving the way and, and really making sure that this gets out into the world. Um, another wonderful resource, Dr. Lawrence Afrin is one of the biggest proponents of research on mast cell activation syndrome. He has spearheaded a lot of the studies that are out there and has spearheaded a lot of the consensus to uh, or the push for the consensus to diagnostic criteria so that more people are captured within the diagnosis who need to be. Um, he maintains a listserv for specifically for clinicians where there is daily dialogue about um, literature, about case studies, about the intersection of, it's not necessarily the intersection of eating disorders and mast cell, but it's the intersection of a lot of those other co-occurring conditions that we spoke of and mast cell activation syndrome and can be, it is incredibly useful for clinicians looking to have that sort of up to the minute um, insight into what's going on in the mass activation world. Um, Lawrence, uh, Dr. Lawrence or Dr. Larry Afrin, A-F-R-I-N is the doctor who runs that listserv and, and he can be found online and, and emailed to inquire more about joining that. Fantastic. Thank you. And are there outside of resources like um, that listserv, are there specialized education opportunities for dietitians, for example. I know for myself as a mental health clinician, I definitely refer to dietitians. Is there any kind of specialization that we should be looking for if we suspect MCAS um, in terms of the dietitian world? That, Or is this so mainstream in the dietitian world that it's a safe assumption that that a dietitian would be familiar with these, you know, these um, concepts like sensitivity to histamine. Yeah, no, <laughs> I would say it's not a safe, not a safe assumption. Um, I would look for a dietitian who either states that they specialize in chronic illness, um, and and or a dietitian who is who considers themselves an integrative or functional dietitian. Um, there are integrative and functional nutritionists out there, some of which are are very good and very well educated. I I would still tend to look for. Um, well, I shouldn't say. I, I, as a dietitian, I'm a little bit biased. There's more criteria to meet as a dietitian. Nutritionist doesn't necessarily have criteria, even though many nutritionists are very well educated. Um, but looking for that moniker, you know, integrative or functional registered dietitian or integrative or functional nutritionist with sufficient education can be really helpful to help whittle down who might have the most insight. But really the main, once you kind of use those criteria, just ask, you know, do, do you have insight, knowledge, background in working with clients who have mast cell activation syndrome or any one of these co-occurring conditions. Um, but no, I would say the majority, I would say the majority of dietitians do not have knowledge of mast cell, let alone the majority of eating disorder dietitians. I mean, I think now with just the education push that's happening with the help of the Gaudiani Clinic, with the help of other clinicians who are slowly, you know, being educated, I think there's a movement right now. And it's a good time to be a part of that movement because there's, there's such a need for it. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I certainly can see the help that a dietitian could bring to the table because, as you've already mentioned, this is so complicated 
to understand what somebody's triggers are and to really get in there. Certainly for me as a mental health clinician, it's outside my lane um, to talk at least, and, and not necessarily for all mental health clinicians, but in my specializations, it is to sit down with a client and talk about a food diary and let's look at what you've been eating and how it relates to how you've been feeling. That for me is not a specialization. And I'm grateful for dietitians to be able to get in there and, and explain this, um, as a complimentary, uh, resource for mental health. So thank you for the clinicians like you that are doing this work and recognizing this relationship. Um, we have a really interesting episode featuring Dr. David Wiss, where he talks about nutrition and mental health along these same lines of like seeing all of this overlap. Um, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. You have shared so much information that I think is impactful and significant for mental health clinicians. I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share this with us. No, thank you. Thank you for providing the platform to do so. Such an important, important topic. And I think the more people who are aware of it, you know, the better off everybody is. So thank you. For people who want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way to do that? Sure. They can go to my website, AICnutrition.com. And I do work one-on-one with clients. I offer groups as well. Um, So they're welcome to contact me to, to learn more. Fantastic. And again, for our listeners, this is Amy Isabella Chalker, registered dietitian, here to talk with us today about mast cell activation and uh, eating disorders. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you, Beth. Likewise. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.